I'm Bay, and you're listening to Bay Baltimore, a weekly pop culture and society podcast recorded in a quiet neighborhood in Baltimore. This episode, I watched most of the first episode of Tokyo Vice, and I want to talk about it, or at least talk around it, um, because that show is fascinating. It's just, it, it took me a minute to kind of wrap my head around the thing. But anyway, so, but, but I'm going to talk about it or talk around it. But first, I need to spend some time talking about winning time, the rise of the LA Lakers. I, I know this is all HBO Max, all of this, the, the Tokyo Vice and winning time, HBO Max, I get it. Here's the thing. I know that a lot of non-basketball fans probably probably are not checking for winning time because it's about the you the assumption is that it's about the sport and the sport only. But that's not the case. What is more, I think one of the most Interesting things about this, outside of the fact that you have Sally Fields, Adrian Brody, John C. Wait, John C. Riley, wait, Sally Fields, Adrian Brody, John C. Riley. Um, those are the Oscar winners that I know about. Well, is John C. Riley an Oscar winner? I can't remember. But Oscar winners and then just heavy hitter actors who are like really good in this thing, like really good. When I tell you the the director, oh, and that not so, so that if that's not enough, the director, the, excuse me, the, the director, producer was a former basketball player. So there's a connection to it. Um, Some of the actors played basketball. Here's, Here's why that's important. Most of the time, actors are perpetrators. Most of the time, actors are just literally, they're the best liars in the world. They really, they spend months getting to know a thing they really don't know anything about. They become proficient, or at least passably proficient, or it appears as if they are proficient in this thing that they're they're attempting to well actually no like dead serious some of these some of these folks are proficient like i know a lot of people don't like to <laughs> talk about tom cruise and how weird he is but like he flies planes and he's able to fly planes in his movies which makes it more realistic when you are trying to portray a person who knows how to fly planes because he actually knows how to fly certain planes and that's why that's why all of these actors take all of this time. And I'm, I know I'm saying I'm preaching to the choir for many of you, but some of you, maybe I'm saying something new, but I'm trying to get you to understand how this thing applies. If you know how to do the thing that you're portraying, uh, someone who knows how to do a thing, it, it's, it feels more authentic. Remember Keanu Reeves in that, uh, that was it Nosferatu? What? It was um, Dr- uh, Dracula. Was it Dracula with um, Gary Oldman as Dracula? 
Remember how his accent was garbage? Remember how most of the time Keanu Reeves sounds like Keanu Reeves in his, in his movies? And it's best that he doesn't have an accent or he doesn't try to put on an accent because he's not good at it. Um, he's the one that sticks out to me like a sore thumb. His accent is terrible. Like, well, in that, in that particular movie where he, it was, again, he was um, opposite Gary Oldman, who was Dracula. I believe that was the film. Um, he was supposed to be English and it was a terrible English. It was like a... Um, it was like a California, an exaggerated California, like, hey, dude, surf's up um, accent, trying to do an English accent. That's how it sounded to my ears and most people's ears, because most people make fun of, of his accent in that film. Um, and there are other examples. There are absolutely other examples. I think British is the one that's easiest for people to make fun of, because it's the, the one that you can, at least Americans can at least Americans can hear that it sounds ridiculous. Or if there's an, an English person or anybody for that matter, but particularly English person that's trying to do an American accent, when you get it wrong, it's really wrong. It sounds really wrong. Um, which is surprisingly because when they try to do the New York accent, you would think that there would that would be a little bit more transferable because the the New York accent is a little bit there are remnants, there are holdovers from colonial days when um, when transplants were um, from England, or or even in the uh, revolutionary days when many more transplants were directly from the shores of uh, Great Britain, um, the UK, what have you. Anyway, um, but yeah, when that accent is wrong, it's really wrong. Southern accent, too. When it's wrong, it's real wrong. But anyway, so yeah, so when you run up against, uh, what's that guy's name? English actor, uh, played Bond, Daniel Craig. Daniel Craig, okay, did he sound like Foghorn Leghorn a little bit in in, um, Knives Out? Yes, but hear me out. His accent sounded like Foghorn Leghorn. And certainly there was a joke about it. But like, if you listen to somebody from Kentucky, actually, he was he sounded like he was from Virginia a little bit, like somebody who's hoity toity, who, you know what I mean? Like somebody who has an accent, but was like trying to sound a little proper, you know what I mean? But not trying to get rid of the accent, but definitely trying to sound proper. Actually, Daniel Craig definitely sounded like that was a real that felt like a real accent. It was funny. But it was a real accent and he didn't break. I never once, to my knowledge, in that film, never once heard him break. Um, Idris Elba. Alba, is it Elba? No, Elba, is Idris Elba. When he was putting on that New York accent, his accent for The Wire, talking about The Wire, um, his accent was so good. I think there was only like, throughout the whole series when he was on it, I think there was only like one or two times that I caught that it sounded a little funny. And that's over a series of TV of episodes. That's like a ton of episodes, right? And so slips happen when you're in a movie, like you get to like, for the most part, you, you can do read, well, you can do retakes on anything. It's just, I imagine when you're doing a series, it's a heck of a lot harder over a period of years to not ever mess up your, um, 
to not mess up your accent. Whereas, um, you know, if you're doing a film, you're only you're shooting over a series of months. It's not easier. Well, it's a little bit easier. It's still hard not to break, not to slip. But anyway, I can remember him slipping like once or twice. When I found out he was English, it tripped me out. It tripped me out because I was like, that accent was real, real good. Because he sounded like, again, me, me watching The Wire being from in Baltimore for a dec- over a decade at this point. He sounded just like any other New York transplant, New York, New Jersey transplant in the, in the Baltimore area at, that, has been, that has been in Baltimore for a little while. So he's picked up some of the accent, not all, but some of the accent. It was great. I loved it, right? And even even um, old dude who played McNulty, he only slipped a couple of times. And he's English too. He only slipped a few times. But again, I will give grace because that's a, that's a series. That's a heck of a lot harder over a series of years doing shows to not break, right? So what am I saying? How does that relate to like, your physical memory, you physically be able, being able to perform a thing. Well, the thing about it is, it's like with Tom Cruise when he's flying a plane, right? There are, so, you can know how to do a thing and then there, there is knowing how to do a thing and then there are nuances that come with knowing that, right? So I've never flown a plane before, but I know that there are some pre-check things that you have to do before you even take off, right? There's a a long list, a laundry list of pre-check things that you have to do to make sure that your machine is is functional and trying to prevent failure, right? And I know that there are certain maneuvers and certain protocols that you have to employ when there is an emergency. And so when you are watching Tom Cruise fly planes, fly a helicopter when there's like let's just say one of the bang bang shoot 'em up films and, and the thing gets shot there's a certain way that he responds in an in that emergency situation while he's still acting like the big tough the big tough good guy because they always set him up to be the good guy um or the misunderstood the rebel good guy or what have you um even in that moment it feels natural the way he's reacting because he genuinely this is genuinely within reason like not that a normal (laughs) any other helicopter pilot would would have to go through this but I'm quite sure it feels like a protocol that he might train for um which makes that scene feel more authentic regardless of how you feel about Tom Cruise and all of his all the backstory and baggage that he comes with thinking specifically about what works in his action films Half of the time, and I know a lot of this can be CGI and things like that, but some of that you can't, you can't manipulate. It's coming from the actor. And so when you, trans, when you think about that, when you think about someone like a Tom Cruise who literally trained to do the thing, even a martial arts, who literally trained to do the thing, to do the thing that they are portraying the character who has been doing it for years... There's a certain fluidity or there's a certain natural ease that comes when they begin to perform the thing. I'll do another one. Uma Thurman. Something didn't totally sit right with her portrayal of um, 
uh, in Kill Bill. And the thing about it is it always comes back to when you see people, when it comes to martial arts, like, and I think this th- the same thing about the superhero movies, and I'm going to be a little critical in a second. The men get super big and the women are just spelt, right? Sometimes you can see some muscle, some like for real muscles and, and thigh muscles and all of that stuff. But you and I both know that a, per- that a woman who is truly building muscle, even if she's lean, it's muscle, 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 muscle. Like even it, it, uh, I don't know any women, woman who's in martial arts or fighting whose thighs aren't muscly and they look it. But nevertheless, like all these superhero films, all the women look spelt and you see a little you see toneness, but you don't see muscle muscle. And that's not realistic. Right. Uma Thurman was sinewy. And I was stringy is not that's not it. That's not what I want to say. But she had muscle. But you, I would never, you would never. <laughs> she looked like Uma Thurman, who, who she looked like a white woman had been to the gym. Now, I know that she trained. I know that she did, um, she did martial arts. And a part of that is literally her body type, right? But there was something about that portrayal that made me want to suspend belief a little bit. And I don't know if it was just because... Yeah, I know exactly what it was. It, it just f- felt weird to me. Everybody else, everybody, <laughs> you wanted me to believe that No, anyway, I'm not it, it, that was harder to believe. It was an entertaining and interesting film. It just I didn't it didn't sell me. It sold me I'm going to train for a couple of months. And then I'm going to portray like I'm a master at this. And it was a lot of great storytelling, but I didn't buy Uma. I didn't buy Vivian. I didn't buy Lucy. Of course, I think the only thing we saw of Lucy was her sword fighting. And, and it wasn't even sword fighting. It was just a few. It was like that one scene. And then the rest of the time we saw her, she had a machine gun standing over Uma. Right. So like the fighting scene with Vivi- Vivi- Vivica Fox, Vivica looked like she had spent some time fighting. I still didn't buy that she understood martial arts or the type of martial arts and fighting that they were doing. Neither did I buy just like I didn't buy Uma truly understanding it. The actress, the um, the the peep, the characters they were playing. I didn't get that, but I, I I didn't get that sense. But I got the sense that the both of them worked out real, 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 real hard because they knew that they were going to have a fighting scene and they needed to be in tip top shape. That's all I got. Um, in the superhero films, it just looks like they work out real hard. The only one that I felt like knew a little bit like what he was doing was Batista, but that's only because he's a professional wrestler which translated to, to you believing that he was capable of doing in that role, capable of doing just about anything within reason because he actually wrestled. Everybody else, you was just out here looking good. You know what I mean? Now, mind you, that might, be, that might not be fair, but Chris Evans just looked like he looked real, real good. But like, you, I mean, this is also a little bit of a stretch because... He's actually not a superhuman. But at the same time, he looked like he just looked really good. But like, 
couldn't apply some of the knowledge, some of the, some of the work, you know what I mean? I don't know. And maybe I could be all the way unfair, but I guess I'm saying all of this to say that when the actor has a knowledge base beyond the six months prep that they do for the show, for the film, it translates better on TV. And then you couple that with award-winning actors, which if awards don't mean anything to you, look at the body of work. Because I recognize that, that awards, is, that, that's, subject, that's subjective. But what is more compelling is literally looking at the top tier high quality work. And one of the things that is so gut-wrenching in this film, in this show, is the fact that Dr. Buss, Dr. Buss himself, is this whole ride. I, I would like to think that the, the show is about the, L, the rise of the LA Lakers. This show is as much about Dr. Buss and the roller coaster ride as a GM, not a general manager, what is as an owner that he's had, as it is about Magic Johnson and the roller coaster ride that he's on, and some of the players and their personal lives, and some of the former coaches and their personal lives, and, and the staff. But it's actually, no, I said it's as much about Dr. Buss as it is about everyone else. It's literally Dr. Buss and then everyone else. But they cleverly disguise his story in the middle of this because he's, he's the bedrock of this thing. This show doesn't happen without Dr. Buss because the story doesn't happen without the nuances of Dr. Buss's story. I'll remind you because I talked about this a couple of weeks ago. And I know that some folks were like, mm, later for that. And some of you are probably later for this anyway. And in the show notes, I guess I'll, I might cue you to just talking about Tokyo Vice. But um, let's not forget, this is a former NASA scientist. Dr. Buss is a former NASA scientist who quit being a, a scientist, a NASA scientist, and went into real estate gambled in buying, acquiring um, assets, and then just kept acquiring them. Bought big time buildings across the country, and then took those buildings and traded them all to buy um, Laker Stadium, whatever it's called, whatever it was called at the time. Laker, no, to, to buy the Lakers and the stadium and every, everything therein. Because he wanted to. Literally, because he wanted to. Be, and, and what we come to know that's driving him is that he comes from abject poverty. And you get the sense, and I don't know if this is a little problematic or, or not. Well, it is problematic because it kind of comes out in, in, in different ways. When he's like, I'm just going to follow my heart and I'm not going to let anybody stop me and I'm just going to rise to the top. Now, he's not a mediocre white man, but he is a problematic white man in that he's a womanizer, in that he's a cheat. He's a womanizer, a philanderer, and he literally dodges taxes. He's a tax dodge. Um, Well, no, not a tax dodge, but he definitely like forging the books and having his mama do it, which is wild that you would have your mother do that. But hey, keep it in the family, I guess. But anyway, 
So he, but, so he buys this franchise and immediately the heartache and the frustration begins because he doesn't have the money to maintain the franchise that he's, as he's perpetrating. But he's betting that the Lakers will turn around because of some, some player prospects and also because he's going to turn the Coliseum, that's what it was, the Coliseum into this place where all these stars will want to be. And then you'll want to be there because the stars are there. Now, what we know in real life is that is exactly what the Lakers are. We all know, we all remember, if you've paid attention to basketball at all, and I've had to pay attention over the years because my hubby is a huge basketball fan, but if you've paid attention over the years, over the last decade or so, you know you saw Jack Nicholas um, on the sidelines, and he was one of the first celebrities that you saw. Everybody knows um, Spike Lee stays on the sidelines for New York, but Jack Nicholas stays on the sidelines, or at least stayed on the sidelines um, for the LA Lakers. And there, are, there was this phenomenon that even exists today of stars who are really gung-ho. Snoop Dogg always going to Oakland games. Um, or uh, not uh, Oakland. They're not Oakland anymore. They're Las Vegas. Um, Raider games. Um, I can't think of other stars, but even in base, baseball, basketball, football, soccer, there are certain stars that now the camera always pans to because they're always there, right? They're always there. They, are, they purport themselves to be, because they probably are, super fans um, who get active in the game and, and are just really into it and really want the home team to win, right? Well, it's clear that Dr. Buss is the one that started all of that, that started putting, putting the stars up prominently, allowing them to get floor seats, allowing them to, yeah, allowing them to get floor seats so that you could see them and turn it around into being, using them as an attraction. And I think everybody kind of understood what was happening, but like, you know, if you're an A-list celebrity, you are used to folks trying to get what they need out of you, so you might as well just have fun and get what you want, right? <clears throat> right? So he's the one that started that. He also had the club lounge and things like that where, oh, now you want to come here to party. Now, that doesn't always happen so much at stadiums here. But I know every time there's a game, a home game in Baltimore, there's always a big fancy one of the retired players or one of the players is always hosting something. Always hosting something here around Baltimore. And I can't help but think that that's a remnant of some of the things that, in part, what Dr. Buss was doing when he was trying to make the Lakers profitable and make them profitable and a winning team. So because you can't forget that there were a lot of there are a lot of high stakes trading trading that happens and things that go fall through coaches quitting that they were counting on coaches getting hurt um, that they were counting on. Pat Riley's in this story. Adrian Brody plays Pat Riley. I didn't know his story. You don't have to be a Lakers fan to get into this. Um, but yeah, you, we see the rise of Pat, Pat Riley, a very prominent GM today, used to be coach, very prominent coach, now prominent GM of the Lakers. But like the rise of Pat Riley, which is an interesting story, um, the rise of Magic Johnson, even through all it. So I think I... Because I was born in 83, I don't think I was aware of Magic Johnson until he announced, until he announced um, 
his uh, contracting AIDS, but I don't even think I saw that thing live. I think I saw it when I was older. Because I think he did that, was it 90 or 89? It was either 90 or 89. And either way, I was too young to be watching any press conferences. So I can remember turning back around and thinking, oh yeah, all these people are talking about, I remember at the time, a lot of people talking about Magic Johnson, but I couldn't really put two and two together to understand why they were talking about him in this particular way. Cause it didn't seem like it was great. It seemed like it was scary the way they were talking to him, but I couldn't really process it. Then when I got older, a little bit older, still preteen, but older, um, I'm thinking, oh, wow, so he doesn't have it anymore? He had this deadly disease and now he doesn't have it anymore? You know what I mean? Uh, No, 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 I don't think they started talking about him not having it anymore until closer to the 2000s, so where I was well in my teen years. Um, So, yeah, I think my first real memory of Magic Johnson was a replay of his press conference where he said he had AIDS. And then from there, or not AIDS, but HIV, And then from there, I just remember thinking, oh, well, he's a really great basketball player. Next, right? But I didn't realize how big of a deal that was until I got older. And I totally understood the HIV and AIDS crisis and how it just decimated whole communities of people. And the, the, I'm, I'm refreshing my memory and adding new knowledge, um, these days, because there are a lot of podcasts out, um, about the U.S.'s terrible response to the AIDS, the HIV/AIDS crisis, um, and how slow the medical world turned around. Although they slow, they they turned around a heck of a lot quicker than they changed. They renewed their mind a heck of a lot quicker than polit than the, uh, politicians, which is not new. Um, but yeah, the, like him coming out. And sharing that information made it okay and probably was a catalyst in many ways for a lot, a lot of great research or greenlighting a lot of great research or the, the catalyst for a lot of great research in HIV and AIDS treatment to be greenlit. The same as Rock Hudson coming out and saying right before he died, as he lay dying, that he was dying from complications due to AIDS allowed or pushed, propelled, whatever you want to call it, Ronald Reagan, who was president at the time, to release funding to HIV and AIDS research projects for the purpose of finding um, treatments, better treatments that were more effective and improve the quality of life of patients who were living with HIV and AIDS. So anyway, like, but the lead up to that, it's like telling his story, but then also, and this person is a first-time actor. This person who's playing Magic Johnson is a first-time actor, and I'm not saying you're getting like award-winning acting from them, but you're getting really good acting from them, largely because there are award winners on the daggone show. So in other words, when, you're, when, when you got some people who are stepping up their game, you step up your game too, so that everybody can achieve greater things, and I think that's the thing that's happening here. So you're telling Magic's story, you're telling Pat Riley's story, in the nuance to that, I did not realize, and I don't know why I didn't know this, but Pat Riley was a former player, had a ring before he came to the coaching staff of the LA Lakers that, that year, that 80, that 19, that 1980 year, was it 79 to 80, whatever, whenever he came on, um, after the coach, 
the head coach had um, gotten into an accident. He comes on, on the staff, and this guy is like depressed, which is real. Again, and I'm not saying, Adrian Brody, I don't know if he plays ball. He didn't play it professionally, but he's an award-winning actor. And I'm, well, I'm quite sure he does play some ball, but like the caliber of acting and the nuances to the stories are phenomenal. And it, you, you cannot just ignore the show because it's about the Lakers. You cannot just ignore the show because you think it's just about sports. Pa- uh, John C. Riley is playing Dr. Buss in such a way that is wild. He, Dr. Buss, you can tell on the one hand, Dr. Buss is extremely smart also very risky, also a womanizer, also very um, insecure. Insecure is not the right word. He's been dealing, living with trauma and he's also losing his mother. So he's been dealing with trauma from his father abandoning, he's got abandonment issues from his father leaving him and his mom to fend for themselves and they were extremely poor to now this one person, his mother, who has been his constant the entire time is now fighting the battle for her life that she's losing. And so in the middle of all this, some serious heavy hitting stuff is happening on the owner front for the basketball team. And there are intense situations. There are so many situations where he's under immense pressure and you think once he's solved, he's turned down, tapped down the pressure on this one incident, another one pops up and you think it's fake and most of it is embellished, but the way that they put it together feels so real, feels realistic, even though it's exaggerated, it feels, it doesn't feel like, oh, okay, for real. Or at least not to me. To me, it feels like, yes, this is drama, but hey, you live on the edge, Dr. Bus. You live on the edge. You got to stay there. You got to stay there. You got to tough this thing out because I, I have faith that this thing is going to pan out. You want this. At the end of the day, even if you're not a Lakers fan, even if you're not a, a sports fan, you root for this story because it's you root for everybody in it. There is um, Wood Harris. I keep, I keep, I cannot tell you how many great Wood Harris. I think is he an Oscar winner? If he's not an Oscar winner, he's an Oscar winner to Black folks, Black Americans. Wood Harris is an Oscar winner to Black Americans. We'll say that because Wood Harris acted his tail off here, and so Wood Harris plays an um, an um, a uh, basketball player who has an addiction issue and he's struggling with addiction and there is a moment in this last episode I think this last episode hit me like a ton of bricks because it brought in real world challenges death addiction and there's another thing that was brought in oh death addiction and power struggle the way that those things through oh sorry my bad death addiction and recovery uh, from a traumatic brain injury. So you've got substance use, mental health, and you've got, well, actually trauma. So all of this is, is, is trauma because if you think about it, so the character that Wood Harris plays is living with trauma from his childhood trauma, adverse childhood, uh, listen, aces. 
His ACES score is probably up through the roof. Through the roof. And we kind of get a glimpse of some of the things that a little bit of the trauma. We get a glimpse of that in this show, but just like in the, in the, the late 70s, early 80s, we truly don't know all of what's going on with him because people didn't care what was going on with you. They just took care that you got your stuff together. They didn't care about trauma and people weren't openly going to therapists like that. Common people weren't openly going to therapists like that. Stars and rich people did in those days. It's not so much that way now, but like you can understand, you can appreciate the sentiment. This man dealt with some childhood trauma. Some stuff happened and that we will truly not know about. But we get a glimpse into it because every time he comes on screen and in the very beginning, the, whoever is editing this thing, boy, they deserve an Oscar. They do. They, they deserve an Oscar because there's, there's, a, there's a sound trigger that is... That is um, Wood Harris's character, uh, his, his trigger that zaps him into wanting to use or abuse drugs. And it's a whistle. It's a memory of a whistle. Of somebody, like a person whistling. And... Oh boy, you can only imagine the backstory of the trauma. And, and no less, this is coming out. Uh, d- d- this episode, of course, I would be doing this in May, Mental Health Awareness Month in, in the United States. Of course, I would be doing this here. I work in mental health. But boy, oh boy, the, his ACEs score, this, this basketball player that Wood Harris is playing, his ACEs score is through the roof. And Dr. Buss's ACEs score is probably through the roof as well. Given how he's engaged, Given how he moves, his ACEs score is up there too. But this player, his ACEs score is so high up there. And he, he's, his fight to stay clean is tougher and tougher these days. Despite him, it appears that he has custody of his child. So despite him having custody of his child, he's got some things that he needs to work out with a therapist, only this is 1980, he ain't going to no therapist. He ain't going, Dr. Buss ain't going to nobody's therapist. Men don't go to therapists. Not real men, right? So neither one of these people, we see these people, we see both of these people. So whereas the Wood Harris's character Whereas Wood Harris's character turns to drugs, Dr. Buss's character turns to alcohol and sex, mostly sex, in some of the most inopportune, risky behavior. It's both risky behavior. That's how they express their, their, their that's how they express themselves. They, that's how they, they relieve the tension, tension and pressure. Neither one of those are healthy. One of them is more pronounced than the other. Obviously, the drug use, the illicit drug use impacts a basketball player more. Well, not more, but like it's, it's more evident in his play, especially when he's too far gone to perform regular tasks. And so what we see is him, him in a stupor twice on this show. And the second time that we see him in the stupor, no, probably three times, actually. And the third time we see him in the stupor, it has a, a profound impact on his basketball career. And Wood Harris is acting. 
Superb. Superb. But then again, John C. Riley's acting superb too. And in their responses to what's going on. Oh my goodness, there's just so much good, there's so many interesting conversations that are being had in the show that I'm sure, I'm 100% sure that somebody on that show, well, no, I'm not 100% sure because people do what they want to do. What I will say is John C. Riley, without question, deserves high praise for his portrayal. But there's a whole bunch of best supporting, too, because I believe that he is the lead. But there's a whole bunch of best supporting, too. When I tell you throughout this entire series, I've seen nothing but trauma and (laughs) and. um, Oh, shoot, I forgot. I forgot that one coach. There's a bunch of aces. A bunch of people have adverse childhood experiences. Um, I forgot what the S stands for. But anyway, adverse childhood experience, it, it, yeah, maybe the ace is, is small s. So yeah, so many of them had terrible childhoods or terrible things happened in their childhoods that they will not get treatment for. There are women who were sexually harassed on that show. Um, or if they're not sexually harassed, so we move beyond that because nobody's going to deal with the sexual harassment. So we move beyond that. And now there's just a glass ceiling that they will never exceed. They will never go beyond, right? And then there's a lot of cheating and philandering. There's a moment where, and this could be a complete embellishment, but <laughs> the woman that Magic pretends to love or says that he professes that he loves Cookie, he literally sleeps with her best friend and she gets pregnant. Her best friend opts to sleep with him. That they agree. That's not your, first off, that's not your best friend. She'd been jealous of you the whole time. That was your friend of me the whole time. Her friend of me the whole time perpetrating as a best friend. Gets pregnant. And then Magic gonna try to call Cookie while she at college talking about, well, she got a, she, she uh, lost the baby. I could prove it. How childish and messed up. And that's the thing that, first off, I don't even know how Magic and Cookie got together. I really don't. I really, really don't. You slept with my best friend and got her pregnant? Both of y'all don't exist to me anymore. Neither one of y'all exists to me anymore. I don't care if you got millions of dollars. I don't care if you're a big time star. I, uh-uh. Bridge too far. I, it's one... It, Sleep it. Listen, fidelity. Are you kidding? You would never be able to expect that. You would never be able to expect that. So anyway, um, just the, the stories that are here, the stories and then the relationship between Dr. Buss and his daughter and the fact that he loves her more than life itself, but doesn't even recognize her own talent and her own skill for this work says a whole lot more about his his fear of putting her through the anxiety that he's going through rather than recognizing her to be the capable businesswoman and capable decision maker that she is. And she's trying to grow a spine because that's her father and her grandmother is is dying, which is his mother, and it's a delicate moment. But like, at what point do you stand up and talk for yourself, right? So there's a whole lot of women trying to find their footing here and trying to find their footing and establish their presence in Cookie and Dr. Buss's daughter, whose name I've forgotten. 
Um, And then there's a whole lot of men in this show trying to work through trauma, trying to work through trauma, trying to, but not knowing that they're trying to work through trauma. This show is good, y'all. And you should, this show is good, you guys. Anyway, I've talked about that. Oh, I've talked about it enough. Um, If you're not watching this show, I know it's been renewed. If you're not watching this show, you should be watching it at the very least. So last, this this Monday, was it Monday or Sunday? This Sunday's episode was the penultimate. So the series ends this coming Sunday. Can you watch the first episode and then watch the last one? You do it like Game of Thrones. Watch the first episode of the season and watch the last one, right? That'll give you, you will still have missed a great deal. But if the penultimate episode got me in my feelings, I guarantee you, that this final episode of this season is going to be superb. I'm expecting it to be superb uh, um, because it's following up to the, the playoffs, right? It's, it's following the Lakers on their season and all the ups and downs that have happened um, to everybody that's connected to the Lakers throughout this season. And so we're, we're headed to the playoffs, we're in the playoffs right now. And so there's a lot of stuff that's going to happen in this upcoming episode that I think will be interesting. We've got loose again, the situation with Dr. Buss and how he's going to deal with grief. Um, the, the situation with Dr. Buss and his wife, or excuse me, and his um, daughter and whether or not he's going to help her. He's, he's going to let her loose to do the business that he knows deep down inside she can do. What's going to happen with um, Pat Riley and his career in this moment? What's going to happen with um, Cookie and um, Magic? Um, We already know something wild happened with uh, Wood Harris's character. Um, He does something wild at the end of this penultimate episode that will have far-reaching consequences in this final episode of the season. So you're going to want to watch this thing. And you do still have plenty of time to binge. It's just toward the end of the week. You've got time to binge it all on HBO Max before you watch the final episode of the season on Sunday night Um, or Monday morning, depending on how (laughs) the cookie crumbles for you. But man, oh man, just give it a try, y'all. It's so doggone good. But anyway, let me pivot. Okay, so Tokyo Vice. When I tell you I put off watching this from the trailer alone, believe me. Um, that trailer gave me very much uh, the thing that I don't like about a lot of media is that it centers white people. And I've, I've not been shy about that and, and, and it's not the fact that it's centering white people. There are certainly stories that, in, that are about whole families who are white and that doesn't make it racist or weird. It's the continuous versions, like nuanced version of the same story that is infuriating to me. It's Tim Burton's incessance not to include a, people of color in any significant way because it, he, it, he doesn't like the aesthetic. Um, it's the, it's the telling, saying that you're telling diverse stories, but what you're really doing is telling 
a darker shade of vanilla, a darker shade of tan, right? And you're not truly telling nuanced stories. And so HBO is a, is a culprit of telling non-nuanced stories or centering whiteness in a people of color story. And so, and, and I'm not, this is not a revolutionary thought. Everybody understands that. Um, or at least most people, most people of color understand that about HBO. And so one of the reasons why I put off watching HBO, uh, uh, Tokyo Vice is because it looked like one of those stories where you're centering whiteness in an Asian setting. You're, you're, you're in the, an Asian country and the focus is this white person. And I didn't want to do that. I don't want, I don't want to watch another, another, what, last emperor, what is it, last uh, samurai? Where the white, this white man is the last samurai and he's white, but he's grown up in the tradition and he respects the tradition. Who cares? Who cares about that? Let's talk about this rich tradition of samurais and, and what that was all about. The nuances of being a samurai. Who cares about this white man adopting culture? Let's talk about the culture itself. Like it's not, that's not interesting to me. And so my thinking is if you are going to be a non-person of color, or uh, if you're going to go to a culture where you don't, that's not your culture. I don't want you centered, or at the very least, if you're a part of the story, you better be perpetuating and, well, you better be uplifting other stories too. I, I'm done with the, 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 the white savior is wild to me. And in this context, it felt like he was either, I, when I watched the trailer, I couldn't tell if he was a reporter or if he was a detective, it came across as a detective. Well, as I'm watching this thing, it's, a, it's, it's I, I, again, I didn't watch the whole thing because I had to go back and catch the context because that's the type of film that I like. So there are, thing, there, are, there are things about the series that I like, but I cannot ignore the fact that some wild stuff happens in what, the first 15 minutes? First 15, 15 minutes of this, mm-hmm. First 15 minutes of this episode, some wild stuff happens that feels a little racist and weird. So I want to get into that and then kind of talk about the overall story, um, or at least what I was what I was able to get to. All right. So in the, hold on. I'm not going to be all down on white people and all of that stuff, if that's what you're thinking. I really am going to talk about the show, but you can't ignore the fact that, you know, this thing gives off very centering whiteness vibes, but we're going to, we're going to push, we're going to push beyond that because I actually think there's a cool story that's taking place here. Um, that there we need to dig into, but again, I, part of the reason why I didn't watch the whole thing, I didn't finish the whole thing is not because I didn't want to of the first episode, not because I didn't want to, but because there was so much happening that I needed to go back so that I wasn't missing something, which is a good sign for me. Anyway, so in the next segment, I'm going to just talk about that for a little sec. But let, let, me, let me just take a uh, quick little break. Okay, so let me get into it. Um, 
Let me go to the particulars. So Tokyo Vice is in its first season. I suspect that it has already been renewed, um, but it is. it was released April 7th, so I'm late to the party. Um, it stars Ansel Elgort. Well, hold on, let me go through it. Ansel Elgort as Jake Adelstein, who's the lead white person. He's the, the lead character. Uh, Rachel Keller, Samantha Porter, plays Samantha Porter. Ken Watanabe, who is, I would say is a co-lead, is uh, plays Hirohoto Katagiri. Um, Sho Kasumatsu plays Sato. Um, then it includes Rinko Kikuchi, who doesn't have a character name, which is really interesting because then there's a white woman that's behind her. That's Ella Rumpf, who definitely has a name because her name is Polina. Um, then it's Tomohisa, Tomohisa Yamashita plays Akira. Um, and there's a larger list and you know how Google does. Um, Google often puts forth the, the larger Western stars. And so obviously, um, some of these folks who probably shouldn't be up here are actually up here. But Ken, I remember Ken Watanabe. Um, who did he play? I feel like I remember. I remember this actor because I've seen him a jillion times. Um, I remember him from Memoirs of a Geisha. Of a Geisha. Geisha. Yeah, yeah. Memoirs of a Geisha and Inception. Ooh, I remember him from Inception. Yeah. So Memoirs from a Geisha and Inception. That's where I remember him from. I did not watch The Last Samurai that he was in. Um, I did not watch The Last Samurai because I didn't want to see Tom Cruise as the white savior. So cut it out. Um, Especially since, how you gonna make... One of the things that I'm learning on the TikTok um, is that, and I think I've heard of this before, but I'm I'm sure I've heard of this before in in reference to... uh, Samurai Jack. Yeah, it was in reference to Samurai Jack. It wasn't Samurai Jack. Afrojack. Okay, not the not the not the uh, DJ Afrojack, but literally there's a cartoon character. It's an anime cartoon character. He's got an afro. I actually think it was done by the RZA, so maybe it's not anime. I don't really know. Um, anyway, you can tell I'm not really into. <laughs> You can tell I'm not really into anime. Um, not on purpose. It's just I don't. I haven't watched it for real. Um, but anyway, there's. Long story short, there was supposedly in in history there was a um, a black samurai whose features were African and um, hair was textured in African, but he was a samurai, and um, which. I find to be more interesting than, than, than having Tom Cruise play The Last Samurai, but whatever. Um, maybe that's a real story. Who knows? But funny how that story has been told um, and variations of that same story have been told. But we've never gotten once the story of the Black Samurai. Or at least I haven't seen a mainstream gr- British... Um, Afri- uh, the, uh, from the African continent, Asian continent. Oh, uh, well, Asia diaspora. I haven't seen a film that is celebrating this uh, apparently famous black samurai, but whatever. But anyway, um, but that's how I know, that's how I recognize this actor, Ken Watanabe. Um, anyway, all right, so let me go back. 
So Ken Watanabe, I don't know where Ansel Elgort is from and I really don't care. Um, I don't think I know Sho Kasamatsu. I don't think I know his work. Nope. I don't know none of this stuff. No, and it looks a lot of, it looks like teen dramas and stuff, so no thank you. Um, nope, never seen any of it. Actually, I'm not familiar with, the only, the only actor I'm familiar with is Ken Watanabe um, in this whole thing. And that's actually the reason why I watched it, because I was thinking, okay, maybe, just maybe, he's a co-lead, but like, it's going to focus on him a lot, because they're totally in Tokyo. But the first 15, 20 minutes that I watched, mostly focused around Jake, good old Jake. And there's a cringy. So anyway, let me get into it. So I said all of who stars, this, se- this series has seven episodes in it. So um, I believe she's finished. Oh, she will be. No, no, no. The, no. So the series is finished. So I should probably push forward. Um, it was adapted from Tokyo Vice, another show by the same name. Production companies, Gerson Sainas uh, Production, and some other folks. Um, original language is English and, and Japanese. Um, currently, the show is on HBO Max, of course. It has 8.2 out of 10 on IMDb and 86% rotten, uh, fresh on Rotten Tomatoes. What are they saying on Rotten Tomatoes? They sang on Rotten Tomatoes. Well, and let's be clear. The average tomato meter reading is 86. The average audience score is 92. Um, what are they saying? Nothing. They're not saying much of anything. Okay. Well, I can't tell you that, but, well, hold on, score details. How about that? Nope. Top critics? Nothing. All critics? Nothing. Okay. All right. So I'm not really hearing much about the why, um, about that rating, which normally they do give you, but it's clear that it's fresh. Um, pretty good score. 90% of, of Google users like it. And so far I am one, despite centering this white student, um, who is weirdly from Missouri, um, which is where I'm from. Um, and there's a moment where he, we learn that he's Jewish in the most racist way possible. And I don't know what to make of this. I, I don't know what to make of this, but let me go back. So when I saw the trailer, at first I wasn't sure if he was a journalist or if he was a police officer, like a detective, because I knew that, that Ken Yamamoto's character was a detective. Uh, so, and let me start calling his Ken Watanabe's character and... Jake Adelstein and Jake Adelstein and Hiroto Hiroto Katagiri. So I knew that Hiroto Katagiri was a detective, but I wasn't sure if Jake Adelstein was a detective. But in the synopsis, if I had read it, and certainly when I began to watch the show, you learn that Jake Adelstein Adelstein is an American journalist who plugs into the Tokyo Vice Police Squad and descends into neon the neon underbelly of Tokyo. So the first 15 minutes of this series is mostly centered around Jake. Actually, the first 10 minutes. No, my bad. The first five minutes includes a scene with Jake and Hiroto um, going to meet some bad guys. Some folks that are clearly like well-connected, 
don't mess with these people. You get the sense that they're like the Yakuza. Because that's my only reference to a crime, a, a Japanese crime, or it, it, uh, this is what I know of crime syndicates. It's the mob, which is the Italian mob, the Yakuza, MS-13. These are, and this is largely because it's been in media. MS-13, uh, the cartels, and Somali pirates. That's what I hear. And even all, all of that is not organized, right? Um, but when it t- comes to organized crime, when you're thinking of organized crime, the only organized crime that I can think of that, that jumps out to me is when you're t- talking about Europeans, when you're talking about white folks, it's the mob, the Italian mob. And it, the Irish mob, the Irish mob, but mostly the Italian mob is what comes to mind. And then when you're thinking in the, Asia di- the Asian diaspora, the Yakuza always come up. Why? Because it's in tons of American film and TV. That's the long and short of it. It was in Kill Bill. Like, that was like a big part of Kill Bill. The Crazy 88 was a part of the Yakuza. So anyway, and there have been a ton of douchey, weird films that were, you know, centering white folks, but like obsessing over the Yakuza. So... That's why, where I get this reference from. When you see in this opening first five minutes, you see, you see um, Jake, hair slicked back, acting, you know, acting big and bad. Well, not big and bad, but just acting like he's unfazed. Walking at first with Hiroto, who's too cool for school, on some old, just be cool, because you know what it is. Like, let's just, let's just get this thing done. And then to the point where, where um, so they walk into what looks like a club slash restaurant. Um, and then Jake is by himself meeting with whomever these people are. And again, it feels like an ambiguous crowd of mobsters who will probably do you harm at the snap of a finger, right? But here goes Jake, he's been summoned. It's clear that he's been summoned to come in there and answer some questions, do some talking. And so, and when he gets into the room with these people essentially on all sides of him and Hiroto somewhere, not super far from him, but not super close enough that should something happen, that <coughs> Jake wouldn't get got. Here comes this one particularly serious looking man sitting on a couch opposite Jake with the city to his back in this big window. It's a beautiful, beautifully shot scene. This scene of Tokyo behind him, or at least this neighborhood of Tokyo behind him. And they're in a high rise and it's nighttime. And so he's like offering drinks and whatnot. And he's sitting there real cool, like, you know, but basically it's like, there's a conversation that begins to happen about a senior official. You get the sense that it's a senior official in this group. They don't, they don't, here's the thing. Crime syndicates don't talk about their themselves in the third person. No, or at the very least, they don't talk about them the way that policing organizations talk about them. Enforcement organizations talk about them. So the Italian mob doesn't call itself the mob. They, from what I've learned from movies and documentaries, they call themselves La Costa Nostra. 
right? So like the Yakuza, or at least this group doesn't call itself the Yakuza. And maybe they're not even the Yakuza, but they call themselves like something like there was a familiar term that the person used, like family or something like that, this group. And then was this conversation that he was referencing his group was in, it was directly related to the, the larger conversation, which is apparently Jake has done a story or has gotten some information on the leader, the patriarch of this group. And it's going to publish because Jake is a journalist for a major news or, um, um, agency in Tokyo. And it's not just a Tokyo news agency. It's like the CNN or the, what is it? The New York Times or the Washington Post. It's like that caliber of, of newspaper that it, its borders transcends the continental borders of Japan. And it, it's international. And we learn that later that the newspaper that he's working for is an international newspaper. But um, in that opening scene, you get the sense that Jake has, has created this story that tells a lot of interesting, has a lot of interesting information that could be damning to the patriarch of this group. And he's been summoned to this meeting to kill the story or he and everybody he loves will be killed. And I don't think, actually, I don't think the word kill actually comes out of his mouth. The, 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 the very serious looking gentleman who's, who's um, warning Jake. But you get the sense. He literally brings up Jake's family. He's like, you do this. It's not just going to be us, you that we touch. It's going to be your family and everybody connected to you. They might get hurt. And the might is they will get hurt. So anyway, and so the ultimatum is pull the story or else. And then the, the camera pans to Jake, who's sitting there trying to be cool, trying not to, trying to think. And he, Vax says, let me, let me give me a second to think. And in that moment, or at least I got the sense that whatever his answer was going to be, if his answer was in the negative, no, I'm not going to retract the story. I'm going to let this thing play out. Jake would surely die or Jake would surely die eventually. But first he would be tortured. And then his people, anybody he cared about would die first around him. And so that scene is what got me hooked. That scene right there, because I'm like, oh, shoot. Okay. It feels like it's centering whiteness and it probably is centering whiteness, but this story ain't no punk. Let me stick around to hear the rest of this thing. So, so after that scene ends, we cut to Jake in his early days in Tokyo and we see him being a student or being a young person, a young American in Tokyo, who's trying to, who's clearly embedded himself in the culture and you get the sense right away he's taller than everybody, which that trope is about as, as tired as anything, right? But not to say that it's not true. It's just literally most of the scenes were showing him being taller than everyone. Okay, so he's white and he's taller than everyone. Oh, wow. Um, 
I don't care. But anyway, so but we but the I guess the main point is we get to see him interacting and trying to blend in with the community, but he never will truly blend in because he's white and taller than everyone. Anyway, but nevertheless, we also see him stud we see him living in this very tiny apartment which the whole world would have you believe that every every apartment in in Tokyo or Japan or China is extremely small and we know that's not true. But um because Parasite let us know that rich people all the, the world over live exactly how they want to live. But anyway, but he's not rich, he's poor. He's a poor student, or at the very least, he's a poor former student who's trying to find work. And so he's living in this hovel of an apartment over a restaurant um, with the tiniest space in the whole wide world and tons of books in it. Um, not very adequately arranged, but whatever, he's a student or not even a student, he's a young person. Anyway, you see him engaging with folks and and going to clubs and stuff like that and partying and just fully immersed in the culture. Um, And also you see him studying a lot. And at first I thought he was studying economics. I actually, I think there's one point where we see the cover of a book and it's an economics book. And I'm like, you studying economics? So you are in school. That's, That's why I keep referencing him as a school kid. Um, because he was studying for a thing. But then, you know, after a while, we get to the moment where he's dressing up in a suit and he's going to this location that clearly is turning out to be a testing location. And his first interaction, this, this first interaction with the person, the, one of the proctors, I guess, or, or one of the people that is enabling the proctors to do their, their job for the testing is this woman that says, this is a, she sees this white man and says, oh, this test is in Japanese. And she, she says it in Japanese. And he responds, talking about um, Jake, responds in Japanese saying, no, it's all right. I, I know this test is in Japanese. I'm, I'm Gucci, I'm good to go. So anyway, we get in here and he's sitting down and this whole group of folks, young people, are sitting down to the same test. And this test is a book, not a booklet, a book. Well, maybe a booklet, but like 20 pages appearing to be like 20 pages of testing, Um, which would be nerve wracking for anybody. But again, this is the thing that is clear that he's been testing for. Um, so, So he takes the test and he finishes before most people do. But by the time the proctors are so you know so it's like a test where you can't cheat you can't look at your you can't do it you, you just have to put your head down and sit at the desk and take the test right so he takes the so they they count off you know like your act or sats so they they start the timer and the proctors are walking around make sure nobody's cheating or whatnot and then he's taking the test and he's zooming through it and he zooms so quickly through it that he's fin- he feels like he's finished raises his head and everybody else is still on the test and he's like, oh, shoot, you get the sense that, oh, shoot, he's studying so hard that he's so efficient, he's so fast. And then the timer goes off, and so time's up. And so everybody in the room puts their, their head comes up, their pencils go down, and they're preparing their test to be turned over to the proctors. It's at this moment that Jake realizes, as the proctors are picking up the test from the back and moving forward to the class, and we recognize that Jake is in the front of the class, Jake turns over the booklet this 20 page booklet and realizes there's like five or six or a series of questions on the back, on the very back page 
of the booklet itself that he didn't finish. And so you see him deflate in that moment. But nevertheless, so he goes on about his business. He goes back, you know, does immerses in the culture, is immersed in the culture, does what you do. Um, and he gets a call at, he gets, he gets a phone call at the restaurant that he lives above, um, with a call to come in for an interview. And it turns out that he was taking a test for the newspaper, for a newspaper, which is wild to me, but I guess if you have so many, I mean, these days when you're applying for jobs, some jobs, depending on the nature of the job, they do require you to take a test. It's just, that seems so wild to me that the number of questions that he would have to answer it, woof just for a job but like if it's competitive it's competitive dude and we gotta weed out the people who are less competitive so anyway so he gets called into the newspaper that he was taking the test for and he's told that you know despite despite you missing the uh questions on the backside of this booklet that you did exceptionally well on the test and in this conversation it's got this panel of people, by the way, this panel of people that's interviewing him. And Jake appears to be ready for anything, including insults. And he should, because one of the, they grill this, they grill him. And one of the things they grill him about is like, so where are you from, Missouri? And they mispronounce Missouri. Um, and, and, you know, why do you want to work for us? And he's like, cause I'm in, I've, my father was a, I think he gives the reason why he wants to work for uh, this newspaper, which covers crime in Tokyo, um, because his father was a, is, was a medical examiner and he found crime to be interesting. And that's why he wanted to work for, he wanted to be a crime reporter. And then there was a moment where one of the panelists says, in alluding to the fact that this is a Japanese not eluding, but in saying that, in confirming that this is a Japanese language um, periodical newspaper that not only goes to, is not only read by millions of people in Japan, in Tokyo, but Japan and globally. And so you're coming here and you're a Jewish person, you're a Jew. What business do you have here um, in Japan? And he says something that it, it, something about this exchange feels racist to me. It's like it's like he says he's a Jew, but then also like a Zionist Jew. That's like it, it gave the it gave very much anti-Semitic. It was I can't describe it any other way. And maybe I'm tripping. Maybe I'm being overly sensitive, but it felt anti-Semitic as all get out. But in even in this conversation, Jake's face is stoic. And I don't even remember what he said in answer to this line of questioning. And I don't know if it was just meant to, to, to weed him out to see if his strength, to test his strength. I don't know. I also think that perhaps maybe this was supposed to simulate a real world experience that he would have at some point because you sitting up here you're not a tourist no more you if you're coming across if you're coming around as a reporter you're no longer a tourist baby which means you gotta your motives have to be pure or at the very least you gotta be you gotta know who you are and you have to know what you're about and what you're getting into but it just felt racist and anti well anti-semitic for sure um 
in a weird way, but like, okay, somebody greenlit this exchange. So maybe it was relevant. So it was after this that, so they have this exchange, they offer him a job in the newspaper, but he immediately turns into the errand boy. So maybe I'll watch more than 15 minutes of this thing. Um, so he immediately becomes one of the errand boys and they all, he goes out with the other newly hired newspaper junior staff, I guess. And their job is to get drinks for everyone else. And it's a weird thing, but he's elated, even though he's doing grunt work, he's elated and he's excited to, you know, get into doing this thing that he really wanted to do specifically in Japan uh, or Tokyo. Anyway, so while they're partying down and he's enjoying being accepted into this club now and, and you know, starting, starting his work, um, the next morning, again, it seems like everybody who just got newly hired and all of the newspaper staff went out partying and they partied hardy all night long. And then as, the, you know, the scene cuts to the morning and you get the sense that they partied all night long and now everybody's going to their respective homes to get themselves together to start the next day. We are greeted with the face of someone who I can't remember. And I got to watch this again and then watch the whole episode. I, maybe I was distracted and that's why I just didn't get through it. And I needed to rewatch parts of it because maybe I was, dist- I know I was distracted. But anyway, um, we see the face of this man who's, who's there's, he's on a bridge and he's not blinking, so you get the sense, okay, something is wrong with him. He's in distress or, or worse. And then the pa- camera zooms out. It's dawn, right? So the sun is, is coming up. It's not out totally yet, but it's, or it's coming up. Anyway, so we pan out, and then we realize this guy is pale. All the color's been drained from his face. And he's not blinking. And his mouth is open, and, and there's blood. And oh, by the way, he's dead. And not only is he dead, but he's got these swords through his stomach. And he's essentially pinned to the railing of this bridge, this walk, walking bridge, I guess. And you get the sense that this is the start of some wildness and the start of, of Jake's connection to Hiroto. Um, and his descent into the crime underbelly of Tokyo and the foolishness that gets him to the point where he's writing a story about the patriarch of this crime family who's who threatened Jake in the beginning to kill that story or you'll be harmed. So anyway, despite the feeling that this thing is white-centered or centering a white person, and there's certainly a lot of white people in this film or in this show, I do want to continue watching it because I want to see where this thing goes because there feels like more of a story there than a little bit. So you, you can't discount the casting. Well, I won't even discount the casting because like I said, I'm familiar with Ken Watanabe and I want to see what he's doing. I want to see his portrayal of this detective. I want to see what alleyways and pathways they go down. Um, yeah, I want to I want to see I want to see where this thing goes. And it's only 7 episodes, so I just need to focus. I need to focus when I'm watching this thing so that I can get on target. Um and everything. But anyway, um yeah. So, moral of the story, watch Tokyo Vice with me. Um 
And um, also watch Winning Time. Please watch it. It's good. I'm telling you it's good. I'm for real telling you it's good. It's real good. Anyway, um, yeah, and so May is Mental Health Month in the United States. Um, May shouldn't be the only time where you focus on your mental health, but it's a really good time to do so. Um, There's a lot of promotions going on for free counseling or at least a free series of counseling or reduced price counseling for online providers, text providers, um, and even in-person providers. You just have to, it's it's all around you. Um, this would be a good time to remind you to save NAMI.org in your address book, just so that they have a lot of, it's a nationally recognized and one of the largest, actually the largest mental health uh, peer-based organization out there that provides free programming across all of its affiliates um, to individuals who are impacted by mental health. That is folks who are themselves living with a mental health condition or individuals who are caregivers of folks with um, living with a mental health condition. That said, NAMI is not the only game in town um, in the United States, and certainly NAMI is not international. So you would do well to reach out to your mental health organizations, your nationally recognized mental health organizations in your country, um, and even in your city, town, locality, and and see what resources they have to offer. Every mental health, uh, public-facing mental health organization tries to work, at least most of them, I would say, tries to work in tandem with other health um, organizations to be able to meet the total need of an individual. Um, so there's no time like the present to support those organizations um, if they've helped you or to seek support from those organizations to get help for you or a loved one. So NAMI.org is a really great place to start. But if you're in the UK, honestly, just Google um, mental health support um, wherever you are and see what pops up. Not every organization is going to do all things. So don't go to them looking for that. But you got to start somewhere and Googling it is half the battle, right? Take Call the number, pick up the phone. And just take that step, take that step to helping yourself or someone you love, um, to supporting them and recognize this. If you're a caregiver, I don't know. It depends on the jurisdiction that you're in, but in the United States, you can, if someone is above the age of 18, you cannot make them go seek treatment. You can only support them. And I wish caregivers across the globe would understand if you are, if your laws dictate that the patient has a right to refuse medical support, then you really have to, and they're of, of, in a place where they can do it, you really need to pack your patients. You pack your patients because the best thing you can do to help this person is to continue to be there. I know this is not what you planned. It's not. This is not what you planned for your life. I know. But if you care about that individual, you have to pack your patients and you have to recognize that Relapses happen. Yes, relapses like relapse in in alcohol and drug uh, addiction recovery. Relapses happen there. Well, relapses happen in mental health too. Things trigger. You you can be triggered by a thing. Something, a loss of something. Job, friendship, family member, close family member, what have you, and that could set an individual off. And maybe they don't have a plan in place to be able to get back to wellness for them. You've got to be, or a medication can just, they can have an adverse reaction to a medication. 
and things could be off from there, right? So you just have to pack your patience and recognize the signs yourself. Forget about what you thought was normal. You need to concentrate on providing support for that loved one, wherever they are, in whatever stage, and, and help to make sure that they're not a danger to themselves or someone else. You also have to be smart too, right? In the United States, it's important for you to call the crisis hotline numbers. Soon, there will be a national number where you can call no matter where you are with your loved one, that you will be connected with crisis response, mental health crisis response agencies. For now, get to know the number in your area. That's very important. Um, yeah, I've, I'm passionate about this because not only has it had an impact on my life, but it's a part of my work. Um, because at the end of the day, one in five Americans are living with a mental health condition. We know in the last two years that one in three individuals said that they experienced um, anxiety or depression around COVID, right? But let's just squash all of that. If one in five individuals are living with a mental health condition and one in three individuals in the last two years um, have said that they've experienced anxiety or depression, then what we know is either we ourselves have have experienced um, situations of anxiety. We all have been impacted by mental health, even if we don't recognize it or it are in ourselves or the very least we know someone who either recognizes or doesn't recognize that they've been impacted by mental health. So translation, we all of us have been impacted by mental health. So let's just talk about it and let's educate ourselves and let's create supportive environments for other people to feel okay to seek education and help for what they're dealing with. And there is no one way to support, to... Mental health conditions impact people differently. So you got to work with that person. You got to be you got to be patient. Many people who are diagnosed with a mental health condition receive several diagnoses first and different medications before they land on something that is truly helpful. Pack your patience. Pack it. Never leave home without it. Anyway, these systems aren't perfect, especially in the United States. These healthcare systems are not perfect, but there are many hardworking individuals who are out there trying to do do great work to ensure that everybody gets good care to mental health treatment and support. So anyway, do your research, do your Googles, tell a friend when you find some good stuff, put it on your fridge, put it on their fridge, tell your granny, tell any senior person in your life, tell everybody um, this information because it's going to help everybody at some point. All right, off my soapbox. Anyway, off to go about my day. And I hope you do the same. Hope you have a great day. Take care of yourself. Take care of yourself. Take care of yourself. There's only one you. Take care of yourself. All right. Have a great day. Be kind to yourself. Until next time.